uh, we better jump in. Um, you know, we, my family have uh, several kids, and so we have several streaming services we watch, and you can watch old TV shows in some of these streaming services. And one of the things I've noticed is that in some of these older TV shows, the introduction to those older shows, like the intro to the show, is really long. I mean, it just keeps going. You ever watch the intro to Full House? I mean, the original Full House, it just keeps going. Over the years, though, these introduction, these intros have just gotten shorter to where now you can even skip an intro. You don't even have to watch it. Well, I want to do like a throwback Thursday, although on a Sunday. If you've ever watched AFV, they have throwback Thursday on a Sunday. Okay. Tip of the hat to AFV. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm so sorry. Uh, you, Your life is lesser for it. Um, uh but, so, but listen, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to do like a throwback Thursday on a Sunday. And what I mean is I want to like go back to a really long introduction for a sermon. Now, I also understand here at East Tent, sometimes Clyde, going back to Clyde uh, Wheeler, sometimes his intros would go for 20 minutes and then he would get into the first point of the sermon and that'd be it. So mine will not be 20 minutes, but I want to give you a longer intro because today we start a four-week series on the topic of justice. And if you have been paying attention to our world over the last five years, it seems like the topic of justice is showing up everywhere. From the Me Too movement to LBGTQ+, to Black Lives Matter, justice is a topic that seems to be everywhere. It's a huge topic. And late last year I determined that we would do a series, a short series, on justice. And I wanted to go ahead and plan that series so that if there was another incident in our country that caused a major flare-up in racial tension, that I could already tell you that I had this sermon series planned well before any flare-up. I wanted to have an anchor for already established, no matter what would come in our country or in our state or even in our city. I didn't want to preach current events. I wanted to preach Scripture, but I knew Scripture. We need, by, uh, through Scripture, we needed to look at justice. But I wanted to go ahead and plan that. And so we're at that moment. But this sermon series has been in the making for quite a while. It's a big topic. It's a weighty topic. But I want you to know that I don't come to this topic as a Bible nerd. I come to it also as one who has studied uh, and considered justice and the topics related to justice from a secular perspective. I've done a lot of work on this topic. And so I want to just give you a bit of a taste of where I have been on this topic, at least academically, so that you understand that I'm not just creating a straw man to tear down, that this is something that I have been sitting with for over a decade and something that I've even written uh, on professionally. So just come with me just for the next few moments on a journey through my past, my academic past, uh, just so you understand where I have been, so you understand how I got to this topic and how we uh, move forward in the next few weeks. So when I, w uh, over 10 years ago, I completed my coursework at the University of Tennessee for my Ph.D. in U.S. History. Now, I, did, I never finished my dissertation, so I do not hold a Ph.D. in U.S. History. Uh, in the end, I chose to give up the path to the Ph.D. I gave up the writing of my dissertation so that I could save my family. That's a story in of itself. I don't regret it, but that's the short, uh, the short version. 
But in my time at the University of Tennessee, I studied a lot uh, related to the topic of, of justice, particularly as it concerns race and gender and socioeconomic um, uh, uh, categories. So I just want to give you just a flavor. Uh, you get, uh, get a taste of the flavor of some of the things that I was reading in my time at UT uh, 10 years ago. T take a look. Here's just some titles of some books that I had to sit with and wrestle with. Um, here's one, Manliness and Civilization, A Cultural History of Gender and Race in the United States, 1880-1917. Uh, then this book, Gender and Jim Crow, Women and Politics and of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896-1920. And then here's another one, Better Day Coming, Blacks and Equality, 1890-2000. This is just a snapshot of some of the titles out there, some of the stuff that I was steeped in in my time at UT. Also, while at UT, I was reading some of the pillars, the intellectual pillars of what we now come to understand as critical theory in our day. People like this, uh, Michel Foucault, a French philosopher, and Judith Butler, a philosopher out uh, in the U.S., I believe in the USC system, at least when I was reading her. Um, both of these intellectual pillars of how we understand gender, things like gay marriage, uh, things even as current as transgender topics, all of that is going to have uh, in, 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 their, um, in their underpinnings is going to have Foucault and Butler and many, many others. But these are people that I was reading from a secular perspective. Also, I was taking uh, many other seminars on a lot of other topics like gender and sexuality in American history. I took a seminar on modernity and the nation in Japan, 1868 to 1925, and then readings in African history, uh, including a lot of work in post-colonial theory. So I was well-versed in a lot of different topics and a lot of current intellectual trends. I also took, in, uh, took in, uh, not took, but also in this seminar on gender and sexuality in American history, above all the reading that I had to do in the seminar, which was a, about a dozen academic books, I also then read eight extra books for what is called a review essay. It's where you take all those books and you work out a common theme out of those books. Uh, and in that, this 30-page review essay, here was the title. I just want you to see the title of my review essay in the seminar, Urban Power. Gender and Sexuality in Northern Cities in America's Early Republic. These are categories I was working with. I was, being, I was trained to talk about gender, sexuality, race, power. These were all things that were in my wheelhouse. I was trained to talk and speak and teach in these categories. Now, just to give you a taste of some of the ways that I was writing, I had learned how to write and talk. Let me give you a, uh, just a quick excerpt from the end of this review essay. Take a look. This is uh, what I wrote right at the end of the, right near the end of that essay. Race possessed a wide range of gendered meanings. Whiteness was linked to manliness and blackness was linked to deviance and corruption. But just like class distinctions frequently blurred, so too racial boundaries. For the foreseeable future, then, it seems that power and race will remain central to how historians understand the sexual gendered terrain of the early republic's urban world. Doesn't sound too Christian, does it? But this is the way I was trained to talk. Categories I was uh, trained to think and teach and read in. Again, all of this seems pretty weighty. I want, but again, I want to take you through this little tour through my academic history. I also had an opportunity to write the definitive history of Knoxville's black community. 
immediately after the Civil War. So no one else has written that history. I claim that as the definitive history in Knoxville's black community. Got that published uh, in the Journal of East Tennessee History. So if you go to the East Tennessee, East Tennessee Historical Society, they have a section on teach, uh, uh, teach Tennessee History. This is a resource for all teachers uh, in the state of Tennessee. And in their section on Reconstruction, we'll go to the next slide, they have three main articles from their publication uh, over the years on African Americans. And you'll see that I have one of the top three articles that they reference for curriculum for teachers in the state of Tennessee teaching East Tennessee history. In that article, and I, I have two copies of it, so if you're interested to just look at it, you can uh, uh, borrow it, but give it back. It's always a, a, a bit of a a reminder to me of what I gave up in a good way, in a good way. Here's what I write at the end of this article. I came into my research thinking that the black community in Knoxville suffered great oppression. These were freed, these were freed men and women. These were people that had just been freed from slavery in, in Knoxville. And they had many that had come from surrounding areas in East Tennessee coming into the city trying to find resources. I believe, starting my research, that they were oppressed, they were beat down, and they were um, a community that was uh, quite marginalized. But the research said something else. Here's how I end the article. Nevertheless, blacks were not simply political and economic fits. They may have benefited from favorable urban conditions, but it was their own courageous efforts to form dynamic communities immediately after the Civil War that allowed blacks to achieve varying degrees of religious, educational, and political, uh, political authority in Knoxville. It's actually a story of great success uh, immediately after the Civil War. The black community thrived in Knoxville. But this is, this is the, the, the history for understanding what happened to freed slaves immediately after the Civil War in uh, East Tennessee's major city, Knoxville. And so I share all this with you. I share all this with you because I want you to understand that when we talk about the topic of justice, and particularly the, the, topics we're, the big topic we're going to talk about, I don't come to this topic uh, as some Bible nerd that just read a bunch of polemical literature. I just read some people that were against everything going on today. And so I just bring you all the arguments against it because of all these people that wrote against it. No, I seeped myself in the primary sources. I read these people. And it was at UT that I came, came really close to just giving up on Jesus altogether. The stuff we're talking about today is very, very powerful. Ideas are powerful. Things like gender and race and sexuality are very powerful ideas. And they are strong currents today. And so I come to it immediately from a secular perspective. And yet I see that the Bible gives a very different vision than much of what I read in my time at UT. But I want you to understand that today I'm not creating a straw man and tearing it down. I come to you with some credentials. I don't know that I'll ever do this again, walk through my academic credentials like this again, but I want you to understand on a topic like this, this is really close to me because it is, it is part of my training. Okay? I don't know. There are other pastors like me, I am sure, but you happen to get one like me. So I wanted to share the journey I've been on. But you're not interested in the secular perspective of justice, nor am I. I'm interested in the biblical perspective of justice. But what do you do with justice in the Bible? That's a massive topic. And there are volumes written on this topic. So how do you get your hands around that? 
Well, I'm just going to tell you, it seems very overwhelming to me. And for six months, I really struggled with how in the world am I going to do a series on justice? I mean, we took almost a year to do Mark. I mean, does this thing need to be two years? I mean, I'll do it. I'll do it. Do we need to do a systematic study of justice? I will. I will make you suffer through it. We'll do it. But I thought, man, even then, if we do, if we do, if we do 104 weeks on justice, I mean, just bypass Easter and Christmas. We just go. We just roll it. Just every week on justice, we're still not going to cover all the material. So how do you get a, your hands around something that big? I've really struggled with this. A few months ago, I was finishing up a novel. It was a novel about a photojournalist who was traveling to Kurdistan, northern Iraq in the 1980s to visit her boyfriend's family. And at that time in the 1980s, this was a tumultuous uh, period for Kurdistan. It was a lot of political upheaval. There was a lot of injustice. There were suicide bombers, random bombs, random violence, uh, politically driven violence. And in the novel, there's this moment where the photojournalist, the main character, the woman, has just experienced one of these great uh, moments of injustice. And she's sitting with her boyfriend's dad. And she says this. Take a look. There's not even police to go to. No potential. Even, uh, no potential even that. Just the potential. There's no chance for justice. Everything is too big. What can you do when everything is too big? And when I read that, I thought, man, that's what I'm feeling. Because I knew the sermon series was coming. What do you do when something like justice seems too big? Here's what came next from the dad in the story. He stares up at a crack in the center of the ceiling. If it's too much to see how big a problem is, then, then don't. Get closer. Make it smaller. And with his chin, he motions to the room here. What you can do today, look for that. And I thought that's the answer, at least for this series. Maybe even for how you live today. Make it smaller. I can't do a sermon series that deals comprehensively with justice. Not in our time together, not 30 minutes a week. That's not the point of the sermon. But we can get closer. That's really the inspiration for what we're going to do for the next four weeks. So here's how we're going to get closer. We're going to zero in on the Gospel of Luke. That's what we're going to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually walk into the story of the record of Jesus. And we're going to watch and learn some lessons about justice. We're just going to zero in on some events in the life of Jesus and even some of the events in the life of John the Baptist. We're just going to take the Gospel of Luke and we're going to walk along in the story, not in a linear fashion. We're not going to start at the beginning and end at the end. We're just going to pick some scenes in the Gospel of Luke and we're going to zero in on a moment. We're going to learn something about justice. And I think what we're going to find is actually more personal and powerful than any theory being promoted today. That's my hope. All right. Long introduction in the spirit of Clyde. Long introduction. All right. Let's jump in. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We pick up with a story of the healing of a paralytic man. You probably know this story. Maybe you don't. We read it here. Luke 5, verse 17 through 26. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Well, they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. 
Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they began to thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, and they were filled with awe. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. A lot of things we could learn from this story. There's, there's a lot of lessons here. We've actually, we've looked at this from other angles, but today I want to notice, I want to notice this, this situation in front of us, a paralyzed man. I just want you to notice it's a paralyzed man coming to Jesus. This is a man who had no means to, uh, to, um, to uh, gather economic power. This wasn't a man who could go to work every day and make, uh, make good money. This isn't a man who had access to political power. This is a man who was on the margins of society. The only way that he was able to make it is because he had friends who would take care of him. This is a man who was very vulnerable. And if we think about justice as related to the most vulnerable, here's a guy who was very vulnerable. He's paralyzed. He can't even get to Jesus without his friends bringing him. And you would think that if Jesus, who embodies justice, is going to do something just, it's going to give this guy the ability to walk. Because at the moment he can walk, he can begin to work. He can begin to care for himself. He no longer has to sit under the oppression of his physical ailment. Now he will be free. That's the thing you would expect, the thing that he was expecting. It's the thing the friends were expecting. But what's the first thing Jesus says to him? Your sins are forgiven. Now, on surface, that looks pretty rude. Here's a man, vulnerable, sick, has no means to make uh, 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 ends meet for himself, and the thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, like that's any good. What good does that do a man who's paralyzed? That's like telling someone, you're going to go to heaven, but I know you're still starving. But for Jesus, that's obviously the thing he needed to hear. So let me summarize it this way. Let me just bear down right here on this summary. I think on the surface that forgiving the man's sins does not look like the act of justice. But Jesus understands what we struggle to recognize. The fundamental injustice, injustice in the world is human treason against God. If there was ever a moment you would think that Jesus would have healed a person, it might be right here. Why in the world would he say your sins are forgiven to a man paralyzed? It's because Jesus understood that sin is the fundamental problem with the human condition. Not your body. Not your position to power. It is your sin. Actually, this happens again if we moved over to Luke chapter 7. Let me set the scene for you before we look at the Scripture. 
There's this moment that Jesus goes to a dinner party at the house of a Pharisee. And when he comes in, he's greeted, and then this woman starts washing his feet, anoints his feet with oil. She's known to be a sinful woman in the community. And the Pharisee looks at this, at this, at this, um, this anointing, this event happening in his house, and says, Don't you know who's, who's anointing your feet? If you really were a prophet, you wouldn't let this woman touch you. Jesus then tells a parable about two people that owed money to a master. One owed a lot, one owed a little. Both were forgiven their debts. Jesus asked the Pharisee, who will love more? The Pharisee says, well, obviously, the person who's been forgiven the most. And Jesus then says this. Luke 7, 46 through 47, he says, You, you Pharisee, you did not put oil on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Her sins are forgiven. Her sins. So here's a woman on the margins of society, I am sure has experienced great oppression in her, in her lifetime. And the thing Jesus does is He doesn't say, let me get you out of your oppression. Let me bring you to safety. Ah, those things are important, but the thing he zeroes in on is your sins are forgiven. Because at root, the problem with every human is not a system. It's not a group. It's not a tribe. The fundamental problem is in the heart. That's the problem. Interestingly, Jesus actually teaches this very thing. If we just... Popped over to Mark chapter 7. Jesus says it this way. Take a look. I'm going to let Jesus speak on this one. Mark 7, 20 through 23, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You know what Jesus is saying here? Here's what He's saying. We'll just put up this summary statement. Injustice is not rooted in a specific group or tribe. It's rooted in the individual human heart. I didn't say it. Jesus said this. Do you, know, do you know how oppression begins? It becomes by someone thinking they're better than they really are and leveraging power to, to abuse others. Where does that kind of arrogance come from? It doesn't come from an abstract system. Somewhere in the world or embedded in some political system or arrangement. It comes from the human heart. That's where this comes from. And then as that grows, it starts to take form into a system or an arrangement. And it takes shape into a particular uh, form in a society, in a culture. But let us never be mistaken. Injustice starts in the heart. All those evils you look out in the world and see, they started in the heart. They start with rebellion to God. Now, the Apostle Paul gets it, you know, he, this famous line he has in Romans chapter 3. He says it this way. I'm sure you heard it. Romans 3, we'll take the last half of verse 22 and verse 23. Here it is. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. What that means is it doesn't matter what group, doesn't matter what tribe, doesn't matter 
It doesn't matter what people group you're a part of. doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, name your group. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the glory. We've all rebelled. That's the way of the human heart. So the question in front of us is not how do we fix oppressive systems in the world. The fundamental question is how in the world did God fix this? How did God fix this right here? If every one of us has fallen, what in the world does God do with that? Paul says it this way. He gives the answer just a few verses later. Here it is. Verse 25 and 26, Romans 3. Well, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand. He left them unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Oh, God dealt with our treason. There had to be judgment. But He put it on His Son. And that was out of love. It was not because we had done something, we did something really good and we deserved it. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we don't have the Scripture up. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin. God dealt justly with evil. He is a God of justice. And He did it out of love. And it came by way of Christ dying for us. He took on our trespasses so that we could be healed. This is not something I've seen very often in Christian literature when dealing with the topic of justice. But I think if we're going to talk about justice, we've got to land the plane at this point coming up right here. Maybe the most important sense I got in, I, I, I have in the sermon today. Right here. Whether we might, whatever we might say about justice, we must start with the reality that the death and the resurrection of Christ is the primary act of justice in the world. For all of our talk of how do we act justly, we have to start from the place of understanding that it is God through Jesus. His death and resurrection, it is through that that justice came into the world. You don't get justice. You don't get full justice before you get Jesus. You get Jesus, the primary act of justice. And from there rolls everything else. But if you don't start with Jesus, you will misunderstand injustice in the world. The cross and the resurrection are the primary act of justice in our world. All right. So that means our story looks like this. It's not a story of being the victim. It doesn't, isn't the story of being the oppressor. This is the story of the Scriptures. This is the story of every Christian. Here it is. Put it up. Let's put that up. This next slide. The fundamental story that you, us Christians, have is that we are oppressed by sin. That's who we are. But God rescues us from that oppression through Christ. That is justice. That is justice. You can also call it grace. Now, when you get everybody on board with that primary understanding of reality, guess what happens? You start getting people who look different, sound different, live in different places, different stations of life. You get them all coming together. That's what was happening in the early church. Here's the way Paul said it. Galatians 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Slave or free. Nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean it takes away distinctions. There are really such things still as men. And there really are still such things as women. There really is something as poor and something as rich. But when you come into the story of Jesus, we all come together in, as one body. I know I make more than some of you, and some of you make more than me. Some of you live in big house, bigger houses than me, and I live in a bigger house than you. Some of you have more education than me, and I have more education than some of you. Some of you are more intuitive, emotionally intuitive than I am, and I am more than some of you. Some of you love sarcasm, and some of you don't. You are different. But we come together and we worship as one body. You think we all agree? No. You should have seen our Sunday school class earlier. They weren't agreeing with each other. Now, I was the one that was in the end right. But there, wasn't all, there, there was disagreement. But you know what we did? We prayed together. Because at the foot of the cross, we all come equal. Because at the cross, we all understand who we are. Every one of us rebels in need of grace. And when you get that, well, then you can start having people with darker color skin worship with lighter color skin. You know, we just had a, we just had a, a, a celebration of life service uh, for Jay Jones, our, our, our retired elder. His casket was right here. And this whole section was full of dark colored skin people. He had a big family. Four of those people came up here and sang at that service. You would have thought we were in a traditional black church. It was awesome. And you know what none of the people here at East 10th that are primarily white did? They didn't walk out. Some of them were raising their hands. And we were all clapping. You know why? Because we were united around the song of Christ that these four women were singing. You get that in Jesus. Okay. Now, don't think I am taking away the fact that, that racism and sexism and oppression exist. Oh, they do. And we're going to deal with that. Listen, that stuff is real. Have there been laws in the United States that have oppressed people? Absolutely. But if we don't get to the base, get to the foundation, we're going to miss everything else. In the end, in the fundamental injustice in our world is our rebellion to God. And the primary act of justice is His death and resurrection through Christ. There it is. All right. So what in the world do you do with that in application? All right, I'm going to try to make this quick because I know I'm long-winded, but I warned you. You don't plan for nine months and miss a slide and go long uh, and, and not go long. Here it is. Here's the application. I think we need to see the gospel of Jesus as knowledge about reality. So what everything we've just said is actual knowledge. It's not, it's not the faith perspective. It's not the religious opinion. It's not a religious opinion. This is knowledge just as much as gravity is, is reality. This is knowledge about the way the world is. And, and, and the reason I say this is because if you are keeping track of current trends in our world, this is not a given. It's not a given that we fundamentally have committed treason to our Creator and we need grace to be saved. You would not get that in our current world. You're going to get a much different story. And if you took, if you took those different theories flying around and you kind of lumped them together, you're going to get what is called critical theory. This is very popular today. It's something that has taken hold in our popular thought. 
And critical theory comes in a lot of different forms. It comes in gendered forms. It has a race dimension. It has socioeconomic categories. But in the end, critical theory is a worldview teaching us how the world really is. And it is diametrically opposed to the Scripture, to the Scriptures. To the worldview, we find Jesus and the rest of the Scripture teaching. Am I saying that there's no oppression in our world? Absolutely not. Am I saying that no one's a racist? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that critical theory is teaching a worldview. It is a form, it is the form of a religion. Now, there are a lot of things I could quote here, but there's one book in particular I found this, I found this defined really concisely. So if you don't mind, I want to read this. Here's a definition of critical theory. I think it nails it. Um, it just so happens to come here in this book called Another Gospel. Critical theory understands and critiques power and oppression along the lines of race, ethnicity, class, gender, ability, sexuality, and many other factors. This ideology sees the world as a struggle between oppressed groups and their oppressors. It then attempts to recalibrate power in the favor of marginalized and disfranchised through emancipation, including formal academic efforts and grassroots activism. It divides the world up into oppressors and oppressed. That's what critical theory does. And there are a lot of different ways to cut that, to cut that world, uh, to, to frame that worldview uh, along lines of gender, along lines of sexuality, along, along lines of socioeconomic status, and particularly race. You've heard, I'm sure you've heard, about critical race theory. This is a hot topic today. What I'm trying to do is zoom out and show us that critical race theory isn't just dealing with racism. It's dealing with a worldview. It's teaching us who we are as human beings. And what I'm saying is, when I read the Scriptures, and I walk with Jesus, and particularly zoom in on this moment where He tell, tells a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, it teaches us that the story of the human experience is not one between the oppressed and the oppressors. It's one of rebellion and rescue. If I said it, let me say it another way. Here it is. Summarize that whole quote this way. Critical theory reduces the individual to group identity and it ignores personal sin against God as the essential problem of the human condition. How do you preach a, the gospel to a group of people who think they are righteous because they're oppressed? I don't care what group we're talking about here. We're not just, we're not just now talking about a racial group. I'm talking about how do you preach the gospel, that you need salvation if you think your identity is part of a group and your group is moral because you are oppressed. Do you see how difficult it is to preach the gospel into that context? It's because critical theory is a false gospel. And it tells you that if you go from being oppressed to, to now the one in power, that that is a form of salvation. That's not the gospel. Please understand, I'm not saying there's no such thing as racism or there's no such thing as oppression. There's a lot of it in our world, and we're going to need to deal with it. But if we don't do first things first, we're going to mess everything else. And we need to deal with this fundamental issue. Here's the problem I have, is that Christians are, are buying into this, and they're making sweeping statements that really do preach another gospel. I want to show you one example of this. Um, I, I can show you this way, but then I'll put it on the screen in just a moment. So this is the latest issue of Christianity Today. This is the uh, main, uh, the main evangelical publication. Uh, uh, th this is the primary publication of the evangelical world, Christianity Today. Uh, they are probably about as centers you're going to get. 
And really, if you put them up against a secular perspective, they're going to be uh, to the right of center. In this latest issue, they have a half-page book ad from University Press. University Press is a major evangelical publisher. I got many books by uh, IVP. Love IVP books. Uh, I used to be a subscriber to their book club. Love their book so much. They just published a book, The Coming Race Wars, A Cry for Justice from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter. You really can't tell much from the title of the book, but it's the blurb. It's the blurb that really grabs the attention that really strikes me. So I'm going to read it from here. Take a look at what it says right here on the screen. You'll see it. A powerful plea for Christians. This is uh, in praise of this book. A powerful plea for Christians, especially evangelicals, to live like Jesus rather than society. A painfully honest, biblically grounded exposure of white racism. A searing call to white evangelicals to finally repent of their long racist history. This is bolded. I, I underlined it, but it's bolded here. If we want to be Christians at all, we must listen and change. A must read. How do, how do you repent of your skin color? I, I haven't figured this out. Now, if there are laws on the books that are keeping people of a particular race down, if it is removing opportunities by statute, then we need to do our due diligence to remove those laws so there is equal opportunity. But I have no idea to how to repent of my white evangelical racism. I don't know how to do that. Do you know what this does? It says that my fundamental problem as a human being is that I am white. Now, if you step into the realm of gender, I'm also a male, and that's also a big problem. So, like, I am the worst of the worst. And many of you are too. You're white men. How dare you be a white man? You must repent. And not just repent. If you want to be a Christian, you must repent. I don't know how this works. Do you see what this, this Christian theologian did in writing praise for this book? He just said the thing you must repent of is not your sin. It's your group identity. That's what you need to repent of. This is a false gospel. I don't know how to be any clearer. Are there racists in our world? Absolutely. Are there white people that treat black people poorly, actually violently? Absolutely. Are there white police officers that treat black people unjustly? Absolutely there are. Are there black people that treat white police officers unjustly? Absolutely there are. Are there white rednecks that need to be locked up? Absolutely. And are there poor black people need to be locked up because they're evil? Absolutely. Are there rich white men that need to be locked up? Absolutely there are. And are there wealthy Asian Americans that need to be locked up? Absolutely. You see, what I, you see, we could keep doing this for a long time. Sin touches everyone. You are not called to repent of your group identity. You're called to repent of your sin. And if you're part of a group that is formally oppressing another group or person, then yes, you need to remove yourself from that group. That would be what you need to repent of. But I don't know how you repent of your skin color or your socioeconomic status or your gender. This is a false gospel. The call to the Christian is to repent of your sin. And you and I have plenty of it. It's why we need the cross. 
I have a problem with critical theory because it's preaching another gospel. And dare I say, it is wicked. And it is from Satan. I don't say that lightly. The reason I took you through my tour of my academic history is because I've read them. They are not rooted in Jesus. They're not rooted in the Scriptures. They are deceiving many, many people. Many people think that they are good because they're part of a a particular group. No one is good. i got plenty to repent from. But one of them is not my white skin. I might need to repent of voting for a law that oppressed a certain group of people, but I don't need to repent of my skin color or my middle-class status. I don't know if I've ever been this strong from this stage. But the fundamental injustice in our world is me and my heart. And the primary act of justice is Jesus on the cross. That's where we put our eyes. All right. So this all can be very divisive. Everything I just said is pretty, pretty divisive. Uh, we are so small, no one's ever going to notice us on the Internet. But if someone big noticed us, I am sure I would be canceled uh, pretty quickly. Uh, if, you, if you pulled what I just said, uh, I'd be canceled, I'm sure. But let me tell you this. We need to be a people who are gentle in how we deal with this. Now, you call, we need to call it out when we need, where we need to call it out. But we also love people where they are. And we don't hate people. We work with them. And we gently respond to them. I happen to have a moment in a sermon where I can be this direct and obviously go very long. But we're going to have to keep in mind... We're not above. We're not above anyone else. And so, when you watch people promoting this in our world, don't forget that you need it saved too. You need it saved too. So, here's what I want to do on this next step. I want to drive us to everything we've just said. Next step this week: look in the mirror. I think we're all we're all capable of doing this. We can look in a mirror. Look in the mirror and remember, justice started with Jesus dying for you. Start there. Start there. It can be real easy to get on our high horse and call down judgment on everybody else. And I'm not necessarily calling judgment down on any person. I'm calling judgment down on, a, on, a, on an ideology, on a worldview. If you don't think that that's reasonable, just read Galatians chapter 1. Literally, just read Galatians 1. But what we have to remember is before we start calling judgment down on people, we need to remember we needed Jesus too. So let's be really gentle in how we deal with this topic. Trust me, I get real excited about it because I think it is a false gospel. But I tell you this, I know people. I'm in conversation with people. I meet in groups with people that are very much invested in critical theory. And do you know what I do? I show them respect and dignity and I have conversations with them. Because there's not a, because as a Christian there's no other way. But I will not give in to the, to the ideology. But man, we need to be real careful how we treat people and talk about people. But make no mistake. Make no mistake. Critical theory is contrary to the Scriptures. You and I are where injustice starts. And Jesus is where justice comes. Now from there, 
we will continue in shorter sermons for the next three weeks. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for an opportunity to gather and, and to hear from your word. We have lots of problems. We have our own forms of paralysis. We hurt, we're ailing, we're part of systems that can be oppressive. But put in front of us the words of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Keep in front of us that the fundamental issue we had to, had to be dealt with was our rebellion. And may that then grow inside of us the fruit of gratitude that we are saved by grace and how grateful we are. And now with access to that justice, we go out and we do justice where we live. We make it all very small and we care for the people around us, people we disagree with, people we love. May we be people who remember our story. And may we do justice with gentleness and with love and with grace, but never forgetting where we came from. And so we pray that under the power of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.